Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we return to our visit with Jeremy Lent, author of the book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, a monumental journey into the direction of humanity, including all the effects that direction has had and is having on our species and fellow travelers on this planet. We started last week and we'll continue into next week. The purpose, as it always is for Spirit in Action, uh, Northern Spirit Radio programs in general, is what's going to heal the world. And in his book, he's leading us through all the structures, which I think will get us to a better world. And I'm so thankful for you writing the book, Jeremy. I want to hit a couple other objections or side thoughts. And again, these come out of my being vegetarian and I think maybe feeling more connected to animals than most humans are. One of the books that I read along the way was Daniel Quinn's series of books. One of them is called Ishmael, the story of B, my Ishmael. He puts out some ideas and there's a telepathic gorilla who's acting as a mentor to a human. Yes, I've read Ishmael too and I love it. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And one of the questions that he poses, kind of using Socratic teaching method with the human, Ishmael, the name of the gorilla, He's trying to get us past the ego that we have as humans that we're the end of civilization, we're the end of evolution. He says, just imagine that you are one of those protoplasmic, maybe a kind of a jellyfish blob floating some billion years ago or something in the waters of Earth. But you're the newest evolutionary thing. And you see yourself as this is what it's all about. I'm the end point. It's about me. Isn't that how he'd see it? And I think the dinosaurs who ruled the earth for some hundreds of millions of years, they pretty obviously, except for maybe a meteor hitting the earth, could have stayed the dominant species. So my question in that is, why is it at all valid, if it is, to think of humans as the endpoint of evolution? Because we happen to have this attribute of this big brain We think that's the greatest thing. Dinosaurs thought that those little hands that the Tyrannosaurus Rex had, that was really the rage back in those days. I don't know. Right. They each have their attributes, which at one point in time, and again, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years, made them dominant species. Why is it the brain? Maybe uh, we're going to find out that there is such thing as, as a soul, and that's really what's going to be the clincher for evolution. Yes, I love where you're going on that. And I would answer that I don't think it is valid at all to view humanity as the sort of end point or even the sort of pinnacle of evolution on the earth, even at this very moment. So one of the things that we've talked about a little bit earlier, you know, is some of these qualities of uh, symbolic thought or the patterning instinct or whatever that differentiates humans from other animals. But I certainly don't want to give the impression that I think that makes humans superior to other animals or sort of puts them above them in some way or another. We can rightly think of consciousness and even of intelligence 
as being not just this one monolithic thing, but actually specific kinds of intelligence or specific elements of sophisticated forms of consciousness. So then if we look at, for example, other creatures such as elephants or whales as two like just amazing species that we currently share the earth with, although at the current rate, yeah, we don't know how much longer that'll be before we drive into extinction. But those are creatures that, in my view, may well have a very a deep and profound experience of the world of a different kind of intelligence, a different kind of consciousness that we humans could only maybe just barely even hint at or just vaguely touch on. So that if they use their awareness to look at us, they might feel, oh, well, these humans are so limited. They think they're so powerful. They do all these things with tools and they destroy so much. And an elephant might feel they have no sense of the depth of emotion um, that comes from this deep connection with nature and with each other. And because the, the ways in which elephants relate to each other is potentially far more profound than anything humans are capable of. And again, the ways in which whales can communicate um, that we're just beginning to get some hints of through deep an- computer analysis of their own sonar communication, so sophisticated that there may be ways of their um, being in the universe that we can only vaguely surmise, even if we can understand it at all. And I think that is one of the reasons why the rate at which we are destroying the natural world and the rate at which we're actually driving these magnificent species potentially to extinction, in my view, is probably the greatest crime that humans could ever commit on this earth and that we're all in the process of committing right now unless we do something to turn that around. I am exactly on that same train of thought, that valuing of the species. I do see that the loss of species, the mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction as we conceive of it, that that is the big crime that we're doing right now. I also know that a lot of people will jump right in my face, and I'd like to know how you address this flip side of maybe evolutionary theory. What really matters in evolution is who succeeds, who ends up, you know, which species survives is really the question. That's what determines what the world's like in the next iteration of the evolutionary process. And so some people, like the rapacious capitalists and so on, see that all that matters is who wins. And that is what's good. You know, that is what's important. What's your answer to that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. And that's another of these kind of underlying foundations of our modern worldview that I do think are flawed at a deep level. And yeah, in a way, it comes to a very sense of identity that. You know, we need to question even that first statement that you made, that, you know, what really matters in evolution is sort of who wins or who survives. And when you think about that, are we, again, sort of applying some sort of human anthropocentric principle to say, you know, somehow winner takes all or whoever sort of scores the most is ahead or whatever. So, for example, if you have some particular species that finds a niche, in a relatively narrow sort of area and is not evolved to sort of take over the world, but is quite comfortable in that niche and, you know, lives happily for millennia and and for millions and millions of years in that area. Who's to say that, oh, they're not successful because they didn't rule the world in some kind of way? 
in a way, we're at this kind of moment in evolutionary history over billions of years. There's this one species that is experiencing, yeah, one species being humans, who are experiencing a sense of what's sometimes called overshoot, where they're expanding at too rapidly a rate in a way that's not sustainable. So imagine if you're a scientist and you're sort of creating, you want to experiment with bacteria on a Petri dish. So you put a certain bacteria there and you give them a food so that they thrive in that area. And let's imagine that they sort of double um, every kind of period. And at first, they're just sort of taking over a slight amount of that Petri dish. And then after a number of generations, they might be taking over, say, half of the Petri dish. And it looks like they're just doing so well. And then one generation later, they've overwhelmed the whole of the Petri dish. And then the next generation, virtually no bacteria left because they've used up all their food, and that's it. And in a way, humans... Right now, we're at this place in our relationship with the natural world where some of the more techno-optimists of humans among us are going, you know, we're so great, we're like taking over everything. But we could be at a place where we are hitting the very, very limits of our ability to sustain. And there's a very real possibility that a century from now, civilization as we know it will be over. And that wouldn't mean that the human species is over, but it might be that there's a tiny proportion of the current seven and a half billion people on Earth left. And those that are left, their generations have suffered terrible trauma, and they're left basically back to the days of early agriculture. And that's the level of society that they have to look forward to. So I think we have to be very careful to not just sort of look at one split moment in time and say, well, that is indicative of where we're headed. So I think that's one very important perspective to take on this whole thing. And the other one to take is this recognition that actually identity itself doesn't necessarily have to be bound up in who we are as separate individuals or who we are even as genes or as a species. So you can look at ecosystems from a point of identity. And then you can look at health and flourishing from an ecosystem point of view, in which case, if you look at the whole sort of ecosystem of what people call Gaia sometimes, like the whole sort of integrated organism of the earth, you can look at these human imbalances we brought on the last few centuries as being similar in some ways to like a cancer, something that is eating up and destroying the harmony of the ecosystem as it was before. And we're going to get to a lot more about harmony as we continue on with this conversation with Jeremy Lent. His book, The Patterning Instinct, his website, jeremylent.com. Also, you'll find more about the Leology Institute that he founded. Leology is L-I-O-L-O-G-Y dot org is the website. He's the president for the Leology Institute. Just a couple more things. I'm pretty sure we're on the same page with respect to this, Jeremy. I just want to make sure, and some of your comments about whales make me think that you're very much on this. There's this whole big conundrum. What is consciousness? What is thought? You refer to symbolic thought, and what was the other kind of thought? Well, the other one I call is animate consciousness. Animate consciousness versus symbolic thought, and... 
You're quoting other people. I mean, folks, the footnote section of this book is, I don't know what it is, 100 pages or whatever. It's it's a massive amount. This is not just Jeremy's thought, but he's drawing on wisdom, insight, research from all around the world to put together the patterning instinct. So symbolic thought is a big step in the process of human evolution. You talk about what it is and how its refinement Maybe it's because I'm a vegetarian now for all these years or whatever. I'm just not 100% convinced. Isn't Pavlov's dog, for instance, salivating to a bell ringing, isn't the dog therefore engaging in symbolic thought? Well, actually, the dog is engaging in a different kind of thinking that cognitive scientists differentiate from symbolic thought, but it's more like associative thought, like associating one thing with another. That is something that a lot of mammals do, even organisms that are not, not even mammals will recognize associations between things. And the whole thing about symbolic thought is that it's almost like a code that we can recognize the ideas that come from using a code of language, if you will, to understand something sort of more symbolic. So I actually make the example when I'm describing the sort of human development of language if your dog is hungry and the dog knows that when you sort of open a can, you know, it's going to, it's time for food. So it comes running. If you write down the words uh, food in five minutes and put that down on your dog's bowl, it's not going to know, Oh, okay, I'll get the food in five minutes because that's the difference that sort of symbolic thought does from that sort of more associative thinking. But the fact that I'm making that distinction doesn't put me actually in a different place than you in terms of recognizing the profound value and importance of different kinds of conscious thought. And my point is that humans may be unique in a particular type of thinking, but that uniqueness doesn't make us better in any respect from the ways in which other animals make sense of the world. It's just a different kind of way of making sense of the world. And it's one that happens to have led to us developing powerful tools, creating imbalances with the world that has led us to sort of destroy so much of what's out there. And in fact, I wanted to make a plug for another book on this very topic that if you haven't come across, I know that you would love and other listeners might also enjoy tremendously. It's a book by a writer called Carl Safina, S-A-F-I-N-A, and it's called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. It really goes into depth on these questions, and it looks specifically at elephants, whales, wolves, and other sophisticated mammals. And he's actually a scientist, so it's written with a deep scientific understanding, but it's written with such empathic depth of profound connection with all these other animals that he studied over the years. So I tell you, on reading it, it brought tears to my eyes a number of times. And it's a really deep, sophisticated, heartfelt understanding of exactly the point that you're trying to get at, of the incredible intrinsic value of the different ways in which other creatures make sense of this world. We're on the same page here, so I'm not really saying this for you, but maybe for the listeners, because I think a lot of us have not self-examined our assumptions about what is of value because it's us. You know, to a certain degree, I understand that as a father and as a grandfather, I protect those of my nest, right? That's my family. But I think that evolution grows as I see us as being bigger and bigger. 
So it's not just that I'm protecting my specific genetic issue. I'm protecting my village, my city, my town, my state, my country, my world, and beyond my species, right? Yeah. That I see mm-hmm. as growth of depth in that. And I actually wonder about the difference in consciousness. I wonder what consciousness an individual cell in my body has versus what I, as entire entity, assemblage of billions of cells, I think of I, but in fact, perhaps it's better to think of we. Is my consciousness really individual or is it multiplicity of creatures just doing together? And I see it as an individual. I mean, these are deep things that I'm sure you're sitting with all the time. Yes, I think that that is exactly where we need to go really as a human species if we are to find a more sort of harmonized place with the natural world is to recognize that we are not just these mere individuals. It's a kind of another of these myths that have developed primarily from Western thinking. It's like this kind of focus on I as this kind of core place of identity. And to go back to what we were saying earlier, like as humans evolved, we sort of developed a sense of shared identity with our community. And over the last few millennia, it's as though that sense of shared identity has to some degree expanded so that now it's reasonable to think of ourselves as identifying with humanity, with all of humanity. Most people already identify with their country or whatever. But I think once we can identify as not just as individuals, but as all of humanity, and then expanding that even further and recognizing that we are actually part of the natural world, that all of us is really almost just like a cell in an organism, that each of us is like cells in this whole natural connected organism of the earth life, essentially Gaia, that through having that greater sense of identity, we would be making very different decisions in what we did with our daily lives. And as a human civilization, we'd be acting in a very different way with the earth. And it's a way that could enable us to flourish with the earth if we were able to allow that identity to become the predominant one in the world today. So I I really with you on that. And I think that Jeremy Lent and I are both on the same page with this song by Magpie, which sings at least part of what Jeremy was just saying. It's We Belong to the Earth by Magpie. We belong to the earth. We all belong to the earth. It's not that she belongs to us. It's we belong to her. It's we belong to her. We belong to the earth. We all belong to the earth. It's not that she belongs to us. It's we We all belong to the earth. 
saying to us, we belong to the earth, about the unity that Jeremy Lent is talking about as we discuss his book, The Patterning Instinct. So much to discuss. A couple other little tidbits that are part of my developing consciousness. Way back in college, which again is back in prehistoric times, I took a class. It was in propaganda, but as part of that, I read a book about the evolution of what we would call civil rights and it has to do with racism and the way that we differentiate. And they made the statement in the book, which I think has been borne out by things I've read since, is that pre-1940, even the most enlightened, most benevolent folks in the U.S. considered whites to be of superior intelligence to blacks. And I'm talking about even the people who 
you know, had black friends or associated that way. And this is actually borne out in Quaker history, even while Quakers were fighting against slavery and trying to work for equality and justice in many ways. A lot of Quakers still carried the prejudice of our society, which was widespread even amongst the nice folks that said blacks were of inferior intelligence to whites. That was stunning to me because, you know, I was reading this in 1970 and we'd moved quite a bit along. And I think that assumption no longer was shared much, although I question whether there's too many people these days who still are stuck in that old paradigm. My point is simply is we have to outgrow our parochial views from year to year to decade to decade. Which ones have you seen fallen in your lifetime, Jeremy? Have you seen the the human prejudice against this as inferior to seeing, no, that was just my narrow parochialism? I love this point because to me, what you're describing is a source of real hope in the face of so many things that could lead us to despair when we see what's going on in the world around us, that there are these shifts, as we talked about a little bit earlier, these shifts in sort of human consciousness that take place. And once they do take place, it's hard for us to even imagine that people saw these other things as norms in earlier times. And, you know, a really big one, of course, is slavery which it's only been, you know, not even like 200 years since slavery was just considered to be a normal part of the world global economy. And now even if it exists in some sort of shameful places around the world, any civilized person anywhere in the world recognizes slavery is wrong. It's immoral and it's, it's a terrible thing. And to answer your question, I think we've seen in just very recent years something similar happening, for example, in the recognition of same-sex marriage. I have friends here in the Bay Area who are now married as same sex who said that they never even dreamed that in their lives they would be able to actually legally be married. And yet now it's considered to be more of the norm than not, you know, and not just, you know, in the United States and in many other countries around the world. So that's, again, we see a norm shifting. And I think that at this very moment, we might be in the middle of experiencing another massive shift in norms in um, the Me Too movement, where in the middle of this horrendous time when we have just a incredibly primitive president who's just putting out all this like messages of hate and prejudice, somehow in the middle of all that, we have this massive social movement recognizing that the fundamentals of the patriarchy that people have just sort of had taken for granted for millennia and virtually every civilization around the world, that these are no longer acceptable and that women need to be treated in a way that is truly equivalent to males and not put in this place where where males can treat them as sexual objects and get away with it. And personally, I think it's just a dramatic transformation that we're seeing right now moving into the very sort of more the centers of power, the bastions that maybe people never thought could actually be affected by that. I think we're just beginning to see the very first steps in another dramatic transformation of social growth in human norms. So I think that's huge. It does give a sense of possible hope for what humans can accomplish if we apply a sense of fairness and a sense of higher quality values to our lives. Those are wonderful points. I'm really glad that you brought them up, Jeremy. 
And it reminds me that I want to remind our listeners that this is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is the place for all things Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul, our two principal programs. But there's lots more there, links, song lists, radio stations carrying our programs. And don't forget to post a comment when you visit. And there's that beautiful donate button, which is how you can help make sure we continue this full-time, people-funded work. We're counting on you. I hope that even dearer to your hearts is your local community radio station bringing you news and music essential to your locale. Start first by supporting them, priority number one. They are helping bring this visit with Jeremy Lent to the world, and they deserve your applause and support. And folks, I want to point out to you that The Patterning Instinct, and the subtitle is A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. The real objective of this is how can we be better? How can we heal the earth? How can we do something more valuable with our time than some, I think, evolutionary dead ends that we are tempted to go down? And I think that Jeremy is trying to help us understand the big picture so that we can make better choices and we can equip ourselves to follow that path because we have to change something in order to not go down dead ends. And you can say yes to that, Jeremy. Did I just say it very well, I hope? (laughs) (laughs) Love it, what you're saying. And a sort of a point that I would hope people bring from the book is this recognition that it's really like an invitation, if you will, to anybody reading the book to really look at your own worldview. And with this greater awareness that I hope the book brings of how different cultures make sense of the world in different ways, creating different sense of sort of value constellations, that everyone really is then empowered to ask themselves, how do I make sense of the world? What are the implicit assumptions that I've not really thought about so much that I've just taken from either parents or or schools or what media tells me? And if I look at things in a different way, what would that mean for my own sense of values or my own priorities that I make on a day-to-day basis? So I hope that people do ask that question when they read this book, because I do think that is the way in which we can really shift uh, cultural direction in the most powerful way possible. And it has all kinds of implications, folks, as to whether we deal with global climate change, if we have worldwide nuclear war, if we, in fact, lead to the subjugation of some people or racism. All of these things are implied by the ways in which we see the world. You might be tempted, however, to think that Jeremy Lent is only talking about philosophy, and he's not. The science is there in the book, The Pattern Instinct. One of the times when you were talking about consciousness that I had the awareness that you really have your ducks in a row on this is when you were talking about the differences, consciousness, intellectual, and symbolic thought between Neanderthal people and what we'd call modern humans. You talked about the Neanderthals being able to do language to X degree, but not to do the third step. Could you talk about what I'm referring to there? I think you can say it much better than I can. Sure. Yeah, I know. You know, so many of these big sort of debates happening in academia, where debates tend to be very sort of binary. People get into these sort of black and white camps. And um, when you have people looking at language, this is one of these sort of binary places where you have one group of people saying 
language only developed in its modern sort of form in the last maybe as short as 70,000 years or so. And you have other people saying actually language developed over millions of years. And where they get stuck is not recognizing that you can actually see language itself as a series of gradations and sort of gray areas, if you will. So oftentimes one of the debates is, did Neanderthals have language? And every now and then, if you read the literature, you'll see some sort of news item saying, new discovery suggests Neanderthals had language. So somehow that in this sort of black and white world, that means that they were black, but now they're white. And so they were just like modern humans or whatever. And the distinction I make is that actually, you can actually look at language. I use the sort of concept of, if you think of like nets with fishing, and um, imagine a, a simple net that like as a kid you might use to catch a little tadpole in, in a pond, like a simple net that just sort of catches one fish. And that would be a little bit like language where, which people probably developed as long ago as millions of years ago, before modern humans who've only been around like the last 200,000 years. And that would be something where you could point to an animal or a stone or something and have a word for it. And people would get that concept. And you see that in little kids today, like when a kid is just learning language, she might run around and figure out that the word kitty refers to that cat over there. And so she'll say that word regardless of what that means. Like she might say, kitty, kitty, meaning like, look over there, there's a kitty. Or she might want the kitty and go, kitty, meaning like, bring me the kitty. Or anything to do with the kitty um, is that one word. And that's very probably how we saw language originally. And then there was another step of language evolving. You can almost think like this fishing nets, somebody connecting them together so that they were kind of fixed together, but they could capture more stuff. And in that sense, you would have language where words would connect with each other, but without the, what I call the sort of magic of syntax, the way modern syntax words. You can imagine somebody looking at a stone after it got hot from a fire and you know, saying stone, hot, fire. And people would get it. Oh, right, that stone is hot because it was in the fire. And then when they're running in the afternoon heat, they might also feel hot. And they might use the same word hot for themselves. And people go, oh, right, that's hot like, the, like fire was hot. So you're sort of connecting up these concepts, but you're not actually developing this amazing sort of magical world that we have with language right now. And that's how I think it's likely that Neanderthals probably did have language. They didn't necessarily have the grammatical sophistication to be able to talk about past and present or future, or to be able to make the distinctions between that stone was in the fire and so now it's hot and it will cool down later. But they could make certain connections. But what modern language did is it enabled us through the use of syntax to do these incredible things we can do today. So sort of do instant time travel. You know, I can talk to you about something that happened a thousand years ago and we're instantly back into the past or something in the future. Or we can talk about what happens in a place far away and bring it right back to where we are now. And that's the, that sort of incredible power that modern syntax evolved with language, which I believe is probably only what developed in maybe the last, maybe 70 to 100,000 years of human history. So I think the whole point about all this, it's an example of how a lot of times in academic discussions, people love to make these black and white distinctions. And I think it's far more interesting to look at the gradations and understand things, how they developed in different ways to really get a better feeling for you know, how the world really works.
you did bring up some evidence, and that's what impressed me in the book. When you talked about the difference between the language that possibly was available to Neanderthal versus modern humans, how do we know? There wasn't a tape recorder back then, or at least, you know, if they had an iPhone, they probably dropped and broke it back then. How do we know that Neanderthals had different language than what we have? Yeah, and archaeologists use these kind of really ingenious ways of trying to make sense of all these things. And the primary way in which you'll do it is you'll look at the artifacts that remain, that they can date back to a particular time. And what they look for a lot is signs of what they call symbolic behavior. So if somebody, for example, used something to sort of paint their face, or if things are used for ways that seem like they were not purely functional, but for some kind of mythic or symbolic significance, they view that as being a sign of symbolic behavior and therefore showing the sort of more modern way of making sense of the world that, as we've talked about before, may be sort of more uniquely human. And you can also look at the sophistication of the stone technologies that we used. So there's these different classifications they have of what are called Aldovan technology and Achaeulean technology and um, the particular technology associated with Neanderthals would be, it's called Levallois technology and it's more sophisticated than what came before but not nearly as sophisticated as what's sometimes called the Great Leap Forward or um, the first signs of really obvious symbolic behavior that we see in Europe around 40 to 50,000 years ago, right around the times when the Neanderthals became extinct in Europe, which leads to these interesting questions like, did the rise of modern Homo sapiens in Europe lead to the extinction of the Neanderthals? Was there some sort of ancient genocide that took place? Uh, horrible to think about, but could that have been something that actually happened? And in my view, again, I think the answer might be a little bit more nuanced than that. We do know from genetics that there was some interbreeding between modern humans and Neanderthals. About something like 1% of our DNA is actually Neanderthal. But at the same time, my guess is that the Neanderthals, and I, I hate to use this word that relates back to this kind of evolutionary, selfish kind of paradigm we talked about before, but essentially modern humans outcompeted the Neanderthals probably, that because of their more sophisticated way of relating together, they probably were able to get access to the prey and access to the wildlife at the expense of the Neanderthals, leading to them dying out. So probably not calculated genocide, but there was, and in just the same way that many of the big mammals died out when humans first came to North and South America or Australia, I think we see something similar happening with the Neanderthals when humans came to Europe. I did want to ask you about that extinction of large mammals. We know from the archaeological diggings that there were very large animals and that they aren't around now. So we can say, okay, they went extinct. But there's a theory about us causing their extinction. And one thought is we outcompeted. It didn't make sense to me to some degree. Certainly the buffalo were present on this continent, and they're pretty large animals themselves. Why weren't they extinct? Well, because they were a food source, or it did happen that when Europeans came to this country that they set about killing millions and millions of buffalo and almost extincting them. But 
the fact that that would have happened twenty, thirty thousand years ago in various places, Australia or in the Americas, does not seem obvious to me. Maybe it's more like when we brought diseases, we brought smallpox, and we wiped out a lot of the Native Americans. Why do we think that people hunted and killed and somehow wiped out these animals? Well, yes, I know. That's another of these things that I wasn't aware of until I started to read the literature. And um, what I discovered is that the data showing humans being responsible for these massive extinction of species around the different continents of the world is kind of hard to get away from. In fact, I show this one figure in the book that looks at, you can see these extinctions of large mammal populations in Australia, North America, and even islands like Madagascar, where um, you can see there's you know, tons of these different species, and then they kind of collapse over a period of really probably a few thousand years, and it's right around the time when humans arrived in each of these continents. And although it's not been proven beyond a shadow of doubt, and it has been controversial, but over the decades, since a scientist called Paul Martin first proposed this in the 1960s, most scientists agree that it's been the humans arriving in these continents that led to these massive extinctions. And so then we ask ourselves, well, why would that happen? And I think one large reason is the fact that as humans, you know, we developed this ability with our patterning instinct to create these tools to create these imbalances between us and the natural world. Now, in Africa, we evolved over millions of years. So species in Africa learned to fear humans from a distance. You know, so when they'd see humans, they learned over, um, as they actually evolved a fear of humans. Even though we look like these weak, puny little um, creatures, we actually throw things and we throw projectiles and we're kind of dangerous. And so mammals learned to treat humans uh, with a, you know, stay away from them. And that's probably why you don't see these extinctions happening in Africa, except uh, tragically in the present day when we're destroying the whole habitat of the wildlife in Africa. But when humans got to a place like North America, you'd have these megafauna, as they're called, who were naive of humans' potential. So they just saw this kind of puny little creature they wouldn't learn to get scared of them. So humans would have been able to come up to them and just basically spear them and go, well, great, nature has such bounty. Isn't it amazing? And it's most likely that the herbivores got killed off by humans who ate them. And the carnivores found that the species they lived on were suddenly fewer and fewer of them around and became extinct through essentially lacking their food source. And so that just left a few species around. So in the case of the buffalo, it's quite likely, you know, until modern humans came along, the reason the buffalo had these massive herds was because they actually were able to grow as a species to take over a lot of the ecosystem that the extinct species had left behind. So you had these kind of imbalances that humans created. Again, like I like to describe things in not so much in black and white terms, but in more than nuanced terms. It's a lot more nuanced, once again, than humans just led to these massive imbalances in North America. So when they first came to North America, to take that as an example, they did lead to these significant extinctions. But they then developed a more harmonic way of relating with the natural world to the point that they found a new equilibrium. It was different from the old one, but it was stable. 
and they learned to uh, essentially nurture and cultivate the natural world around them in a way that was totally sustainable in that new equilibrium. So that when Europeans came to North America a few hundred years ago, um, they found uh, actually a very ecologically stable situation, which they then caused new massive imbalances, which have led to what we see in the present day. But so I think, again, we have to recognize that humans, because of the patterning instinct, do cause imbalances with the natural world, but we have the ability to reharmonize. We have the ability to find new ways to establish sustainable ways of relating to nature. And that's, I think, what our great challenge is today, to kind of rebalance these kind of imbalances we've created right now. And yes, folks, that is the objective of this edition of Spirit in Action. When we're speaking with Jeremy Lent about the patterning instinct, we're talking about what is going to be sustainable. And we're talking about the modes of thought that enable that or disable that. And we have some defective ways of thinking about things, things that are self-defeating that we as humanity or certain subcultures of humanity have been employing for a number of years and with some dire consequences coming from that. I was just looking, Jeremy, at the graph that you refer to on page 98 of The Patterning Instinct uh, about the megafauna extinctions, and it shows Africa where the extinctions haven't been completed for most of the animals, for, you know, 85% of the animals, they aren't extinct. Australia, uh, you know, it went down to what looks maybe to be 15% are still existent. Interestingly, the graph does not include an entry for Europe. Is there a reason for that? I mean, extinctions of the megafauna in Europe would be relevant as well. I think that's right. It was just the source that I got that from just showed those particular ones. But in fact, you most certainly saw that happening in Europe. Even during the times of, like, say, the Roman Empire, there was still creatures that we don't think of as European, like lions, elephants, you know, other great creatures, actually wild in Europe, but they were few and far between. You'd probably see a graph that was very similar, probably not as extreme as the graphs for North and South America, because humans got to Europe at an earlier period, but you'd see a similar kind of falling off. You really see it everywhere in the world, with really only the exception of Africa, because that's where humans evolved their capabilities over millions of years. Well, we need to jump to some other essential parts of this development of our understanding of humanity, which leads to climate change and all the other horrible ills that we're doing in the world. You talk about the evolution of our thought from when we were hunter-gatherers into how you view the world differently when you're in a world of agriculture. I have one of my good friends, Sam Thayer, who's author of a few different books. I'm going to have him on in a few weeks, talking about his foraging books and the consciousness that goes with that. And uh, one of the things he says is that you protect and you conserve that which you know and love. And if you don't know it, then you can't love it, and then you don't really protect it. And so that has everything to do with how we treat the world. Mm. And you talk about the mythic consciousness that goes with older ways of thinking and the ways that the humans or the proto-humans saw the world 
in a different way than we do, that they saw themselves in unity with the world. Could you talk a little bit about those phases of consciousness and how people related to the world that go with hunter-gatherer, agriculture, and onward? Sure. And yeah, that is a, a core theme of what the book traces. And so if we look at what you might think of as the hunter-gatherer worldview, you know, hunter-gatherers were all over the world, from tropical forests to desert areas, even to the Arctic, and like the Inuit in the Arctic. And yet there are certain shared underlying ways in which they saw the world that you see everywhere, not just in one place or another. And those are what I find so fascinating. I think the sort of core thing that connects all the different hunter-gatherer ways of making sense of the world is this recognition that everything is connected. And not just that everything is connected, but and it's connected in the way in which a family is connected. So they would see nature as really like a giving mother and father. And they would see all of the natural world around them, the trees, streams, weather, every single thing, the animals, as spirits. And when they looked at themselves as humans, they didn't see themselves as different from that. They saw themselves as having spirits. It's as though they lived in this world that was filled with like a whole spirit family. And that family was all connected. If they were to um, kill an animal for food, they wouldn't do it in this kind of way, just viewing the animal as a mere resource to be eating. They would recognize that the spirit of that animal is part of their family. And they'd see that as a sacred moment when they would take the actual physical life of that animal. So it was a very different way of seeing things, really like a world without boundaries, a world that was always shifting and transforming and spirits would go from one place to another. And a lot of these cultures, virtually all of them in one way or another, had a shamanic element where the shaman would use different ways of changing consciousness, either through uh, drugs or fasting or chanting to move into the spirit world and to actually commune with the spirits and come back and communicate to their group what they'd experienced. You see that pretty much everywhere around the world in hunter-gatherer cultures. We'll be back next week for one more episode of our visit with Jeremy Lent, and we'll get more of the many insights he's garnered in The Patterning Instinct. Thanks to production help from Catherine Thomas, but I want to play you out for today's Spirit in Action program with another song performed by Magpie, though written by Pat Humphreys, obviously on the themes we've been considering. This is Swimming to the Other Side, and we'll meet you on the other side next week for Spirit in Action. We are living beneath the great big dipper. We are washed by the very same rain. We are swimming in the stream together, some in power and some in pain. We can worship this ground we walk on, cherishing the beings that we live beside. Loving spirits will live forever We're all swimming to the other side I am alone, I am searching Hungering for answers in my time I am balanced at the brink of wisdom I'm impatient to receive a sign I move forward with my senses open Imperfection would be my crime In humility I will listen we're all swimming to the other side We are living with the great big dipper We are washed by the very same rain 
Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 